want to start out this morning focusing on a concept that I'm sure, eh, I would say at least most of you are familiar with. It's a concept of high risk, what's the rest of it? High reward. High risk, high reward. So um, if you have a lot at stake and you're laying down a lot of money, let's say, and you're hoping to get a return on it, the higher your risk, cor- correlatively, which is not a word, but it sounds really good. If you put down a lot of money, hopefully you're going to get even more money back. If you put a dollar down, you might get $2 back. If you put $1,000 down, you might get $2,000 back, right? So would you rather have one more dollar or a thousand more dollars? High risk, high reward. You can play it safe, but you probably, probably won't get as high of a reward if you play it safe. Now, some of you guys are football guys, okay? And I went up to watch Independence play Friday night. Hadn't been up there in five years. That that reward was low, um, very low. But uh, here's the deal. It was third and four. Independence was down 21 to nothing. It was third and four, and they were on about Shady's 30 or 35-yard line. Third and four. Okay. Conventional wisdom says run the ball. If you get a yard or two, then you go for it on fourth down in that area of the field because then it's probably like fourth and one or two. Well, they tried to throw the ball, and it got intercepted. So not only did they not get the first down, they lost the ball. And I'm thinking, who in their right mind would throw the ball there? Because that's what I'm thinking. Of course, maybe it wasn't somebody in their right mind. Maybe it was somebody who was not in their right mind that was thinking that. But they, they took a, a, a big risk. But they suffered great loss in that transaction. That's the other side of the coin when we talk about high risk, high reward. High risk means there's a lot of risk involved. Would you rather lose $1 or lose $1,000? Something we've got to think about a lot, isn't it? We've got to ask ourselves a question, is this possible reward worth the high risk that we're going to take? And I mean, again, they, they, I was at the ball game and they're selling the 50-50 thing, you know, $1, and you could possibly win 60 or 70. Well, what's, it, what's to lose a dollar? Well, some of you are like, well, I don't want to lose a dollar. Okay, then don't, don't do it. The West Virginia Lottery is going to bet that you, that you have low-risk, high-reward mindsets. Listen, that don't happen, okay, generally speaking. Generally, it takes high risk to get high reward. And what we're going to see this morning, hopefully, by the power of the Spirit, is that Jesus is calling His people in a way to a high-risk, high-reward lifestyle. If you would, please stand with us as we read the Scriptures again. And I hope that if you're a guest here, you're thinking, man, they read the Bible a lot. Yes, yes, we do. And we stand because we revere this as the very words of God. And out of reverence to Him and these words, we stand. Matthew 10 Verses 34 through 42 will serve as our text this morning as we finish chapter 10 of Matthew this morning. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses it for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward." And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we approach this awesome text, we ask for your Holy Spirit's guidance and power. 
so that we might learn and grow and be changed to be more like Jesus. And, and God, if there's people here this morning who do not know Jesus as their Savior, I pray that you would speak and be heard and that your Holy Spirit would convict and give life this morning. We need your help and we ask for it, expecting it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Quickly, by way of review, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for several months now. Matter of fact, I don't know how long we've been in it. Anybody have a clue? I'll have to look back and see. Um, and we, we are, we've been in chapter 10 for the last several weeks. And chapter 10 is the second great discourse of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And what He's doing here is He is sending His 12 disciples out for their first mission. He's sending them out to go out and to preach and to heal and to deliver from demons. And He's given them warnings. And He's given them encouragements. And He's doing a lot of work to make sure that they're ready to go out and do the work that He has been doing previously. He's multiplying His ministry, which is a biblical paradigm. We should always seek and ask God to help us multiply our ministry. It's never just my ministry. People talking about my ministry are focused on themselves. It should be our ministry. That's a little aside there. Didn't mean for that to come out, but hey, you know. Anyway, Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out. Remember what He said? As sheep among wolves. But he tells them to take heart and to take courage because he's going to provide for them. He's going to bless them. And he tells them it's going to be hard. You're going to suffer persecution. The church folk, the government folk, your own family are going to turn you over and turn on you. And we'll talk about that more later in this message as well. But he's getting them ready. Hopefully, well, Jesus doesn't do anything hopefully. Jesus is getting them ready to face the dangers and the problems that they're going to face. And He also says, I have given you authority. And it's His authority that He has given them, which sets the stage for Matthew 28 when we get there, when all authority has been given to Him and He passes it on to Him. So today, we come to verse 34. And again, we'll work through to the end of the chapter. We'll actually finish Matthew 10 today. So we'll start with verse 34 here. Do not think, Jesus says that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, wait a minute. What? Did did Jesus get misquoted here by the Holy Spirit-inspired apostle? Or maybe just Jesus misspoke and it got quoted directly. Because if I'm reading this right, if if, if I'm looking at that and, and I really see what it says... Jesus is saying He didn't come to bring peace to the earth. But instead, He came for the purpose of bringing a sword. Now what? Didn't the angel sing peace on earth? Goodwill toward men at His birth? Won't He say later in His life, My peace I leave with you? Isn't one of his names the Prince of Peace? So then why this? What is this? Well, keep in mind our context here. Again, context is key. And keep in mind what Jesus has already said about the persecution and hardships that are coming on the apostles. He said that all men would hate them on account of him. He said religious leaders, family members would turn on them and turn them in. So there's surely problems coming. And Jesus is saying here that He did not come to make everybody just get along. Jesus did not come with the purpose of having us coexist. Amen. You say, now what? Don't miss this, guys. The life that Jesus is promising and the life that Jesus is giving to His people, His disciples and us included, listen to me, that life will estrange them from the world around them. So in that sense, for sure, Jesus did not come to bring a universal peace on the earth where we all just sit around and viva la difference, kumbaya, You get your way, I get mine, everybody's happy. Jesus did not come to bring that to the earth. Quite the contrary. He says He has come, His own profession here, to bring a sword. 
a a sword. A sword. I mean, we have said many times already through our journey in Matthew that Jesus wasn't some military leader that the Jews were hoping for who would overthrow Rome and set up the kingdom of God on a visible throne on the earth. That wasn't why Jesus had come. He wasn't a military leader, but He's saying here He came to bring a sword. That sounds like something a military leader would say. A sword? I could hear maybe Muhammad saying that. But Jesus? That He came to the earth to bring a sword. So now maybe the disciples are going, wait a second. Maybe He is the military leader, the military Messiah that we've been looking for. Well, He explains Himself better in the next verse. Look for that, well, the next two verses actually. Look, look for that first word, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So the sword that Jesus is referencing is not a weapon of warfare, but it's a dividing tool that will divide the world down to people's very own families. Jesus is saying He didn't come to unite all people, but rather, literally, to bring division amongst His people and those who are not His people. Jesus did not come to make nice, but He came, conversely, to separate. Now that's incredibly important to understand if we're going to see this text Right. Again, we've seen over the past couple of weeks that as Jesus sends these guys out, it's a tough road ahead of them. And we said last week that they were going to have to endure a lot, but that it would be worth it. Remember that? Good later is better, we mentioned last week. And now here, Jesus is saying, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. My very purpose in coming is to draw a dividing line. And you, my disciples, are going to have to do the same. He's telling them not to misunderstand His purpose. Not to misunderstand what's lying ahead of them. The sword that Jesus came to bring is going to cut deep for those who are His followers. For, He says in verse 35, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now again, read that again. And if that don't make you go, whoa, wait wait a second. You're not reading it right. This thought pattern of man, father, daughter, mother, daughter-in-law, mother-in-law, and enemies being those of his own household is actually a direct quote, a direct correlation from a passage in Micah that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Micah 7, 6. For the son treats the father with contempt. There's the son father. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are the men of his own house. It's like Jesus knew what the Bible said or something. But see, these were... They weren't superstars. We saw that. They weren't combine type folks. But these were good Jewish people. And they were familiar with the Scriptures. And when he referenced this, they would know what he was referencing it from. They would be familiar. And I think Jesus is saying this for more purposes than just to say, hey, it's going to be tough, your family's not going to like you. Let me show you the context of this Micah quote. I'm going to read Micah 7, verses 1 through 8. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there's no one upright among mankind. They all lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. You think the disciples might feel like this from time to time as they go out? Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. They're going to be handed over to princes and judges, right? And the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms." 
For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. And I'm sure the disciples would have had all that in mind, but I'm sure they would have also had this in mind. Next verse. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Woo! That'll preach. And Jesus knew it. And these men knew it. Jesus is saying, these are the times that Micah was talking about. And it's going to be hard. And you're going to think that the godly has perished from the earth. But remember, I will look to the Lord. As you go out, men, as you go out and you're being turned over and persecuted, look to the Lord. Wait for the God of your salvation. Your God will hear you. And when your enemy looks like they're rejoicing over you, look them in the face and say, rejoice not over me. O my enemy, for when I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Micah is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, decrying how evil it seems that everyone has become and how hard it is for the godly. Neighbors, friends, her who lies in your arms, and then the son, the daughter, the daughter-in-law, the men of his own house deal. And then in verses 7 and 8, Jesus is saying, alluding to... This passage, and hopefully their minds don't linger on the mistreatment, but on the deliverance. Hopefully their minds don't linger on the risk, but they see the reward. That they see God being their salvation. God hearing them, rising after falling, and the Lord shining light in the darkness. Jesus knows that it's going to be, that it's going to be very easy to get focused on the persecutions and betrayals, even by family. But again, don't forget, he would say to them, that God will deliver them. God will give them victory. And we said last week, we don't even have to be afraid of the persecutions. Because we know this is true. And this sword that Jesus is bringing will separate them from even some of their own family. Maybe their own spouse. Don't entrust yourself to her who lies in your arms. But that is not outside the realm of what Jesus has called them to. Do not think that peace is God's work as far as everybody liking you. No, Jesus says He came to bring a sword of division. And that division between God's people and those who aren't is going to be a very difficult, a very personal, and a very conquerable division for those who are truly following Him. He's preparing them for it as He sends them out here. Now, He really digs into the gravity and depth of His calling them and sending them out. Look at verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now let's get real here. Really real. Jesus has already told them that the sword he came to bring will separate family from family. Well, what's that look like? Well, it looks like this. It looks like a person who is willing to be separated or separate themselves from even their father and mother, their son and daughter, if those people are drawing a disciple away from being Jesus' disciple and doing His work. Ultimately, it's Jesus clearly saying, listen to me, that He, He, Jesus, is to be the number one priority of His disciples. Now, I'm going to ask you, eye to eye, is Jesus the number one priority in your life? Over your spouse, over your kids, over your parents, over your job, over your pocketbook, over your football, over your hobbies. Is Jesus the number one priority of your life? Because He says, if He's not, you're not worthy of Him. Dang, preacher. I know, right? 
I've been sitting in this all week, y'all. We're stepping in it. Sometimes it felt like. Jesus is to be the number one priority of his disciples. No person on the earth is to usurp the proper place of the King of Kings in his followers' lives. No one. Now don't miss the scope of this. Jesus, as he sends these men out and prepares his followers and ages to come and how to obey him, is saying that he has to have first place. There can be no emotional, no relational instances that take priority over Jesus. There are to be no ties that hold more sway in the disciple's life than the call and the person of Jesus Christ. Now note what Jesus says. He says that if anyone loves father, mother, son, or daughter more than him, they are not worthy of him. You're like, aha, I knew I had to earn my medal with Jesus. I knew that I had to make myself worthy. So what's that mean? What's it mean to not be worthy of Jesus? What's a tough statement? That's not something we just read and go, okay, that makes sense. That that doesn't make sense to me. The word worthy here is axios, A-X-I-O-S, transliterated into the English. And it means a few different things in some different instances. I want to show you what some of the different definitions are. Weighing, having weight, having the weight of another thing of like value worth as much. So like if you had scales and this weighs as much as this, this is worthy of this. You with me? Befitting, congruous, corresponding to a thing. This makes sense with this. It's congruous. It's the same on this side as it is this side. Number three, of one who has merited anything worthy. And in 3a is both in a good and a bad sense. Now Jesus says those who love others more than him are not worthy of him. Does that mean they're not of the same value as Jesus? Are they not befitting, congruous, or corresponding to Him? Or they don't merit anything as worthy as Him? I don't know. Wrestling with these definitions, I can't really plug this in. I can't reconcile any of these individually, but taking them collectively into mind and then thinking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, then we can come up, I think, with Jesus saying that anyone who loves anyone more than Him is not going to be able to be His disciple. They're not worthy of His calling, His sending them out. Why? Because they aren't going to make it through. They're not going to endure. And we said that endurance is a sign of salvation. They're going to fall away. Someone is going to lead them away from pure devotion to Jesus. They're going to miss the glory that is Jesus, the beauty that is Jesus, and their affections will be sullied. They're not worth a call from Jesus because their eyes, their focus, their affections will lead them astray. And what's going on here is Jesus is judging them unworthy before they're called. Well, that's not fair. Who who are you, old man, to speak back to God? Who are you, old clay, to say to the potter who's worthy and who's not? And Jesus is saying... If somebody loves their mom, dad, brother, sister, daughter, son more than me, they're not worthy. Gavel, swung, not worthy. So he's not going to call them. Dang. So he's judging them to be unworthy before they're called. They must be bad people, right? The problem here is that they love their mom, their dad, their son, and their daughter. Oh, that's not a bad person, right? Bad is not the point here. This is not about good and bad. Jesus is not saying good or bad. He's showing that the dividing line He's drawing with His sword is fine and very decisive. And it's not based on human reasoning or relationships. The sword that He wields divides down to who is His, those who are worthy, and those who are not His, those who are not worthy. And who draws that line? He draws that line. And Jesus is saying not to let anyone, absolutely, positively anyone, 
divert your attention or affection away from Him. Nobody else is worthy of that attention or affection. Now, does that mean that you can't love other people? No. It doesn't mean that at all. He tells us the whole basis of the whole Scripture is love God and love other people. But in that order. Love God first, foremost, in a matter of priority, and that will enable you to love other people correctly. Jesus alone is to receive the place of prominence and priority in His disciples' lives. No one else can take His place. And when I say no one else, I mean no one else. If you've got somebody elevated above Jesus, you are not worthy of His call. You are not worthy of Him. Look at the next two verses. 38 and 39. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus had said not to let mom or dad or son or daughter take priority over him, and now he goes even farther into the very heart of the individuals that he's calling. Jesus tells his men that there is one basic requirement to follow him and fulfill his mission. And what is that requirement? It is is death. Now before you go there in your head, he's not calling anyone to take their life. He's not saying go out there and get yourself killed. That's not what he's prescribing. He says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now these disciples had no concept of the cross as a means of redemption. We celebrate it every week, right? But that, when they heard the word cross, they thought one thing, death. And here, these 12 men look at their great rabbi and he's saying, you have got to take your cross. And they think, he's calling us to die. And is he? Absolutely. Yes, he is. He had told them earlier in this discourse to flee to another town if they're persecuted in one town. So he's not saying go and get yourself killed. No, what he's saying is that this call is a call to a cross and the losing of your life to those who are to do his work and they have to leave their wills and their desires behind. A man on a cross has no rights. The man who loses his life can't fight for his rights. So the call to discipleship is a call for a man to forfeit his desires, to forfeit his wants, to give up trying to figure out what's best for himself and instead looking to Jesus, seeking His will, His way, and His purpose. If one does not take up his cross and follow Jesus, he is not worthy of Jesus. And if you're looking to find your life, you will lose it if it's your life. But whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. You see the exchange here? You see the risk and reward here? It's not taking up a cross so you can feel sorry for yourself. Sideline issue here. Your cross is not your leaky faucet. Your cross is not your in-laws. Your cross is not a car that won't work right all the time. Your cross is the end of your life and your desires for yourself. So you've got to exchange what you want for what Jesus wants. It's not losing your life so you can be felt sorry for either. It's losing your plans, your dreams, your schemes so that you can know what Jesus intends for you. It's losing your life to get the life that He intends for you. You lose your life, but you get His life. You lose your life, but you find His. You lose your purpose, but you find His purpose. The people who we have been divided from don't hold the key to your purpose. 
Jesus does. You don't know what's best for you. But Jesus does. So you get His best when you lay down what you've seen as your best prior. I think that's worth the risk, don't you? In the moment, sometimes it doesn't feel like it is. Let's be honest with ourselves. You want me to lay down my plans? i got a pretty good plan. i got things pretty good. Things are going my way right now. And you want me to lay that down? Absolutely. Why? Because Jesus is mean? Because Jesus wants to deprive His people of joy? Just the opposite. Jesus would not call you to set all your affections on Him if He wasn't the best thing for you. Jesus wouldn't call you to lay down your life and take up His life if His life wasn't the best thing for you. He wants us to have the best, so He says you've got to get rid of yourself so that you can have what I have for you. He wants us to be highly rewarded. We'll talk about that in application. But it's not just us who gets rewards. Jesus is going to show that others can share that reward as well. They won't be left to their own. These disciples won't. Others will help them. There's a reward for those people too. Verse 40. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now there's a chain for you. Remember we said that apostle, the word apostle means one sent. And that one who is sent would be seen as speaking the words of the one who sent them. So these disciples, as they become apostles, as Jesus sends them out, are not speaking their own words. Jesus said, I'll I'll give you what you need in the hour. Go out and speak my words, what I have taught you, what I have said. So these apostles are speaking the words of the one who sent them. They're speaking Jesus' words. They're doing Jesus' work. Well, here, if anyone receives them, Jesus says those people are receiving Him. Now think about that for a second. Jesus sends His men... And he is very realistically saying that he is basically going with them, even though he isn't physically. Again, we'll see it in Matthew 28. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then going through them here, when people help them, they're really helping Jesus. And whoever receives them is receiving Jesus. And not just Jesus, but also him who sent Jesus. Now who's that? That's the Father. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, if they receive you, they receive me. And if they receive me, they receive God, the Father. (laughs) Those Galilean townsfolk were going to be welcoming God into their homes in the not-too-distant future, and they didn't even know it yet. But Jesus is telling His men that they can know that those who help them will be getting a lot more than they know. I'm sure they would want to pay them back. And Jesus said, don't take any money. How can we ever pay you back? You don't have to. God's going to. These people are literally welcoming God into their homes and blessing Him and providing for His welfare in providing for His men's welfare. And remember, early in this discourse, Jesus had said that they deserved the help that they would get. Put that together with this thought here, and Jesus is saying their deserving help and provision is really based on who He is. He's not saying, you guys are good guys, you do deserve help. He's saying, I'm going with you, and I deserve it. Because He's God. He was giving them His worth, His value. And there's a lot going on here, but we've got to move on. More rewards, verse 41. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Sometimes you read things and you're like, does Jesus just like to hear himself talk? Because what, 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 what? That's, That's quite a mouthful, right? Having already said that those who welcome the apostles are welcoming him, Jesus goes on to say that there are rewards for those who are receiving these messengers of Jesus. They don't just get an unawares visit from God himself. They get rewards. If they receive a prophet, because he is a prophet, oh, I'm receiving this man because he's a prophet of God, the receivers receive a prophet's reward. The same is the case for those who receive a righteous person. 
The receivers receive a righteous person's reward. Jesus reassures his men that while they deserve the support they get, their supporters get in on the action too. They get rewards for their kindness and support. Jesus promises rewards for them as if they are the very people they are supporting. So as they support you guys, they're supporting me, and they're going to get a reward for that, the same reward that you get for going and doing what I'm telling you to do. Wow. Why? Because they recognize the support that they're giving is being given to those who, in Jesus' mission, deserve it. They recognize the need, yes, but they also recognize the place, the calling, and the prominence of the ones that they are supporting. And that surely implies that these givers have been given some divine insight of their own. The Holy Spirit is leading and teaching them too. They are prodded by God's Spirit to support God in His workers and His work. And they will receive rewards for it. God inspires, people work, and people get rewarded by God. Now listen to that again. God inspires, people work, and people get rewarded by God. God's doing everything and God blesses us as if we did something. Sounds like grace, doesn't it? As does the last verse of this great chapter. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus assures his men that there will not be one act of kindness that will not be recognized. And whoever gives one of these little ones, these disciples of mine, he's talking about them. You see the, you see the love and the, just the, the bigness of Jesus as he looks at these 12 men and he calls them my little ones. Who are the least in the world. If, if, if somebody gives these little ones of mine even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Truly, the word is amen. Truly, amen, I say to you, that person who gives that cup of cold water to one of the least of these, these little ones of mine, that person will by no means lose his reward. And he's going to receive a disciple's reward. Jesus is reassuring his men that he is going to take care of them down to their most basic menial needs. Water. A cup of cold water. Seems innocuous, but Jesus is saying that He will recognize a gift of water to His men and will reward those who give it. I mean, aren't you worth more than many sparrows? And yes, things will be hard. Yes, they will be persecuted. Yes, they will have family members who turn against them and try to hinder their work. But listen to me, God Himself will care for them And God Himself will reward those who do the physical caring as well. Yes, He is sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves, but the Good Shepherd has gone before them and has made a way and will continue to be that way for His men. And by association, for us as well. Wow. So how do we apply this passage, this magnificent passage today? It would do us all well to spend the rest of this coming week in this passage. Read it. Pray it. Read all of chapter 10 again. Look at the big context here. But today we're going to apply 34 through 42. There's plenty to apply. And this morning our application points aren't alliterated. They rhyme. Okay? You ready for rhyming application points? Sword reward the Lord. That's right. You're not going to forget that. Was it sword, Lord, reward? No, it was sword, reward, the Lord. The Lord, yeah, right. Sword, reward, the Lord. Let's look at these application points. First is sword. Our first application point serves to remind us that Jesus Himself said that He came to bring a sword to the earth. This means division. This means friction. This means war for the believer is a common experience. Peter would say... Why do you think it's strange that you're suffering persecution? The same is going on with your brothers all around the world. And we think it's weird when things get hard for us. Jesus came to bring a sword. And like we said earlier, these things are not in a militaristic fashion, but rather in a day-to-day life is a battle fashion. 
Jesus, in saying that He came to bring a sword to the earth, put His people at odds with the world and made it clear that we would not only suffer persecution, which we've seen pretty clearly over the last two weeks, but also that we would have battles on every side, in every area of our lives. Jesus, in establishing His kingdom here on earth, drafted us for war. War against the world. War against the flesh. War against the devil. And while there's a lot of different directions we could take that as far as application, suffice it to say today that there is within this battle a call for our prime affection to be directed toward Jesus. That's the battle. That's the war. We've got bumper stickers that say, I love coffee. We've got bumper stickers that say our kids are honor students at such and such. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't guess. But where is your prime affection today? What do you think about? What gets you excited in your heart? Is it doing the will of God? Or is it lunch today? Now you can do the will of God at lunch today. But is that what you're thinking? Or are you thinking, what do I want for lunch today? We'll get to that in a minute. There is a call for our prime affection to be directed toward Jesus. That's what the sword was for. After saying He came to bring a sword to the earth, Jesus said this in our passage today. We'll go back to verses 35 and 36. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus hits directly at our human relationships and says, quite plainly, you are not to love anyone, anyone more than me. The sword he bears cuts to our hearts, to the very seat of our affections. And there's no escaping it. There is no relationship or person that it doesn't touch. So as far as application goes, I want you to ask yourself, is there anyone, anyone in your life that you love more than Jesus? Or anything? Is there any person or thing or idea or hobby or pleasure that you think about, care more for, or long for more than you do Jesus? Is Jesus the king of your affections? Are you loyal to Him first and then to others after and through Him? That's the sword that He's speaking of here today because it's very possible or maybe even very likely that some of your most destructive enemies are going to be those in your own household. You're going to be torn as to whether you should love and serve your spouse, your kids, your parents, or your friends rather than loving and serving Jesus. And this is not a cut and dried application point where you can just say, yeah, I've got that problem, or no, I don't think I do. This is going to take some heart searching, some really deep digging. Can you truly sing like we did today? Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. If everybody and everything is gone tomorrow, hallelujah. Everybody. Everything. Hallelujah. I have Christ. Would you celebrate if you lost everything? Would you celebrate if everybody forsook you? Would you bow to the ground like Job and worship? Now this is not a simple answer. Is Jesus alone your true source of joy that all other blessings flow through? That's the sword that Jesus came to bring. I hesitated to use this passage that I'm about to look at in this application point because I've used it several times in the past, but oh well. Philippians 3, 7-11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Everything is loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish. 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. That is a clear example of what the sword of Jesus looks like when it swings. Everything that was gained before is now loss. Paul said he had suffered the loss of all things when the sword of Jesus fell. And he was glad because all of the things that he used to love, he didn't love them anymore. Not that way. He loved Jesus above all and wanted nothing more than to just know Jesus. Now again, ask yourself and answer not too quickly. Is this true of my life? Can I say the same thing? And I said here Wednesday night, I'm not here to beat you up if this is not true of you. I'm here to give you hope that it can be true of you. Jesus would have it so. That's the sword. Point two, reward. Jesus said in our passage today that those who helped His men, His people, would receive a reward for their kindness. And what I want you to see from this today is that God is not indifferent toward the work of His people that they are doing, nor is He indifferent to the support given to those people by others who help them. And I'm not going to ask you to plant a seed this morning into my ministry. God forbid it. I want us to see that in light of what we saw today in the sword application point, that brothers and sisters, your labor is not in vain. God is not asleep. God is not missing your sacrifices for Him. Although really, if we feel like Paul did, it's not really a sacrifice. God sees, God knows, and God will reward. God sees, God knows, and God will reward. And knowing that should motivate us to serve. Knowing that should motivate us to give and live for Him. Listen to this. You, you know this verse, Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists, and what? And that He rewards those who seek Him. You say, well, I believe in God and man, I just I, I hope to make it into heaven by the skin of my teeth. That's not my God. My God rewards. You say, oh, so now there comes the seed and the No, no. I'm saying I have eternal rewards waiting for me. And I can forsake these temporal things. It's not even a high risk. I lay it down now, all that I have, yes so that I can have all that He has for me there. And that's, what He has for me there are, are rewards. You say, well now, preacher, you're talking crazy. You're saying I should live for rewards? Yes. I'm saying it's impossible to please God if you don't believe that He's going to reward you. You cannot please God if you do not believe that He's going to reward you. Ha! I didn't say it. He said it. Well, you know, I just as long as I get to heaven, preacher. No! I want more. I want more there. I want everything He can give me. And He says He will. And I know some of us just go to the place where we say, I'm not after a reward. Heaven's reward enough, but I'm asking you to dream big, hope big, and work to please God. Yes, but also seek His reward for you. God wants to reward you. He commands you to put your faith in the truth that He's going to reward you for it. Down to a cup of cold water in His name for one of His people. He's going to reward you for it. And I don't know if that feels like good news to you or not, but man, it should. 
Every act, every thought, every word, every emotion given or shown for Him will be rewarded. According to what we have done, the Scripture says, we will be rewarded. And while that might mean suffering here and now, it means glory and blessings later when you stand before Him and He rewards you openly and for all eternity. Oh, church, live for your rewards from the God who loves to give them. Jesus also said back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19-21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy them, where thieves break in and say, Right, right, I shouldn't lay up treasures. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is the reward of God, you can store those up there and they'll be there waiting for you when you get there. And it will be God's good pleasure to give them to you. Oh, we don't live like that. I don't live like that. While you're here, do it now. Work for it now. Risk everything now. Like we said last week, good later is better. And like we opened with this week, yes, it is high risk. But live for high reward. For whose sake? For yours, yes. But also for the Lord's. Which is the last point. Sword, reward, the Lord. Jesus exerts His Lordship so clearly in this passage today in calling us not to love anyone or anything more than Him. And we covered that in our first application point. But I want to focus this point on who really is the Lord of your life. Is it Jesus? Or is it you? I don't know about you, but my main enemy in this fight is not a relative or someone else opposing me. My greatest enemy is me. I deserve to be happy. I shouldn't have to do that. Why would I forgive them? They're not changing. And where are my rights? Who's going to fight for my rights? Who cares about me and my situation? Don't I deserve to have a little bit of fun? What's wrong with me being happy? This is not about happiness. This is not about what you deserve. You deserve death, hell, and the grave is what you deserve. No, no I don't. Yes, you do. My greatest enemy in this fight is me. More often than not, I'm the problem in my service and affection for Jesus. And Jesus made it clear today that we have to lay down our lives. Lay down our rights. Lay down our desires if we're going to follow Him. We saw it in verses 38 and 39. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The life of following and serving Jesus is a life of carrying a cross. It's a life of losing. Losing. Tolkien, in his Lord of the Rings trilogy, referred to it this way when Galadriel explained her role in the grand scheme of things. She says this, He has dwelt in the West since the days of dawn, and I have dwelt with Him years uncounted. And together, through the ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. (laughs) Please hear me say this as we finish. This life that Jesus has called us to can be seen as a long defeat. One disappointment, one crushing blow after another. Can't it? Especially if I lay down my life and my rights for the sake of God and for the sake of others. If my prime affection is Jesus and He says, March to the gallows. Sing praises to me as you march to the stake that they will burn you at. This can feel like a long, long, 
defeat. We've already said that all of these men that Jesus is addressing in this discourse in Matthew 10 will die either for Him or because of Him in the case of Judas. Listen to me. Death is the end of this journey. Not ultimate death. And the journey itself is not comfortable or cushy. It is hard. It is lonely at times. It's seemingly out of proportion as far as persecution and problems and pain. But it is worth it. This life looks like the long defeat. And what do we get in eternity? Victory. Total, complete, eternal victory. So the risk of laying down our lives, the risk of the long defeat now, is so much worth So much less to be considered than what we're going to receive when we get there as far as rewards go. So I've got to lay down my life now. If not, I'm going to be overwhelmed by the problems and the persecutions and the blows and the setbacks that I suffer day after day after day after day after day. When the world turns on me, when my family turns on me. This life is hard and it's worth it. And Jesus will reward us. And if we don't die to ourselves in the here and now, we will be miserable. If we don't lay down our lives now, it will feel like constant dying. That's why he says do it up front. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We have to, I would say even, we get to lose our lives in the here and now. 2 Corinthians 5.15 And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. We get to not live for ourselves. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Anybody know Chris Rice besides my family? Okay, good, good. He wrote a, it is on his first album, and I can't remember the name of it right offhand. And then the turnaround in the bridge, he says this, Curse reversing day of Jesus, when you finally seize my soul, freedom from myself will be the sweetest rest I've ever known. Yes. Yes. And may it be so now. Freedom from myself. Him as the Lord not me as the Lord. These calls to death to self are not ominous warnings, but rather glorious promises. Nobody can hinder you. If God has called you, He will equip you, and He will walk with you, and He will be your greatest affection, and you will even die to yourself. He doesn't command you. He says, you get to do this. I'm going to set you free to not live for yourself. I'm going to set you free to not live for the affections that hold you down. I'm going to set you free to live for me. And the risks you take will surely be worth the rewards that you get later. They won't even be seen as risks once you get your reward. So now they're about to break their holy huddle and Jesus is going to send them out. I can't imagine what these guys were feeling. Going into that first town, looking at each other. I know what he said. Let's do this. And today, as we close, church, I know what he said. Let's do this. Let's pray. God, we are so tied to our things, our stuff, our people. We are so tied to ourselves. Set us free, God. Set us free to live for you, in you, through you. God, everything that is on this earth will burn. Every person in this world will bow the knee to you one day. May we be those who do it now. 
Set us free from our fickle affections that draw us so far away from you, God. Set me free from me that I might live for you, Jesus. Swing your sword. Help me to live for your reward as I call you Lord. You will do it, and I praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for a benediction? No. Pop-ups. <laughs> now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said... Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can, though.